Before I start this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, just a quick note of thanks to the photographer who took the photograph which adorns the cover art, Sora Shimazaki, at Pexels. Let's crack on. Hello and welcome to episode 72 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Chris Kirkbride. It's been a middling sort of week this week on the financial crime front. Quite a bit of sanctions activity with news of another challenge to designation in the UK and more sanctions from the US relating to the supply of arms to the Russian war machine. On fraud, a bit of legacy news from the US and the global financial crisis, remember that? As well as news that fraudsters are impersonating the fat F. There's also a bit of money laundering, bribery and a roundup of cyber attack news this week. As usual, I've linked the main stories which I flag in the podcast in the description. Now let's start with sanctions. We'll start in the US. In episode 43, of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, I reported on the arrest of a former special agent with the FBI, Charles McGonagall. This week, it's been announced that McGonagall has pleaded guilty to breaching the US sanctions regime. He's pleaded guilty to conspiracy to violate the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, as well as to money laundering. McGonagall agreed to act for Oleg Deripaska, the oligarch who was sanctioned by the US Office of Foreign Asset Control in 2018. The link to the Department of Justice press release is in the podcast description. Staying with the US, OFAC has designated three entities which it contends are alleged to, or, or sorry, are allied to the illegal arms trade between North Korea and Russia. As the press release provides, OFAC designated Slovakian national Ashot Mirchev on 30th March 2023 for attempting to facilitate arms deals between Russia and North Korea. Through his negotiations with North Korea and Russian officials, he organized potential plans to transfer over two dozen kinds of weapons and munitions to Russia in exchange for a range of goods, including raw materials and commodities, to North Korea. Murchev is the president of Versor, the first of the companies sanctioned, the founder and owner of Verus, who is the, which is the second of the companies sanctioned, and the sole director of Defense Engineering, which is the third of the companies sanctioned under this announcement. Merchev has coordinated the North Korean procurement officials and used Versor to conduct negotiations with companies abroad. OFAC has also announced sanctions against two Syrian-based militia responsible for human rights abuses. The Suleiman Shah Brigade and the Hamza Division are the sanctioned organisations, together with their leadership and those who are allied to them. Links to both press releases from OFAC can be found in the podcast description. Now, two stories from the UK. First, the Office of Foreign, uh, sorry, Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation (OFSI) has announced that Igor Viktorovich Marakov's entry has been amended, but that he remains subject to sanctions. Linked to the notice and updated consolidated list of Rus Russian designated persons is in the podcast description. The second story is the failed attempt by Eugene Schwidler to have the sanctions imposed on him in March 2022 declared unlawful. Schwidler challenged the designation on grounds first that the designation constituted a disproportionate 
interference with his rights under Article 8 and Article 1, Protocol 1 of the European Convention on Human Rights, and secondly, that the Secretary of State exercised his discretion in a discriminatory manner in breach of Article 14 when read together with Articles 8 and Article 1, Protocol 1 of the Convention. Both grounds were rejected this week. The link to the judgment, if you want more detail, can be found in the podcast description. The final piece of sanctions news this week is that Russia has sanctioned a range of UK journalists and politicians, which effectively means they are banned from operating in the country. Included on the list are BBC News presenter and analyst Ros Atkins, the organisation's disinformation and social media correspondent Mariana Spring, as well as Lucy Fraser, who is the Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sport, a member of the UK government. This follows many sanctions which the Russian authorities have already imposed on politicians and journalists from the UK and around the world, comes as no surprise. That's it for sanctions news. Now on to fraud. We start this week's fraud news in the US where there's been more alleged COVID-19 fraud. This time, Austin Martin Siampuiza from Atlanta, Georgia has been charged with a money laundering concealment offence money laundering conspiracy and wire fraud relating both to fraud on the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Scheme, which was one of the US uh, COVID-19 recovery schemes, and various fraudulent employment benefit claims. Simpuiza is alleged to have made claims using identities stolen from more than 50 individuals. Link to the DOJ press release is in the podcast description. Now, we'll stay with the US for the next piece of news, which might only fairly be described as legacy news since the DOJ has announced that UBS has agreed to pay just over $1.4 billion to settle a civil action for alleged misconduct relating to the global financial crisis 2007-2009. The complaint alleged that, quotes, UBS defrauded investors in connection with the sale of 40 RMBSs. Now, they are residential mortgage-backed securities, which were at the heart of the global financial crisis. Now, those 40 in particular were issued in 2006 and 2007. The complaint alleged that UBS knowingly made false and misleading statements to buyers of these securities relating to the characteristics of the mortgage loans underlying the RMBS. This was in violation of the Financial Institutions Reform, Recovery and Enforcement Act of 1989. The Act claims were based on alleged violations of the mail, wire and bank fraud statutes. UBS quotes knew that significant numbers of the loans backing the RMBSs did not comply with loan underwriting guidelines that were designated to assess borrowers' ability to repay. The complaint further asserted that UBS knew that the property values associated with a significant number of the securitized loans were unsupported and that significant numbers of the loans had not been originated in accordance with consumer protection laws. UBS was allegedly aware of these significant problems because it had conducted extensive due diligence on the underlying loans prior to the RMBS being issued to determine whether the loans were consistent with representations that were made to investors. Ultimately, the 40 RMBSs sustained substantial losses. A settlement of this claim 
brings to a close the work of the group within the DOJ looking at the conduct of banks and other entities in issuing RMBSs in the period up to the global financial crisis. Link to the press release, so you can look at it in more detail, is in the podcast description. To the Financial Action Task Force now, which has issued a warning that fraudsters are representing to be from the FATF in order to extract fees for fictitious services. The fraudsters look legit using a letterhead with logo and references with real or fictional FATF officials, as the FATF provides in the press release for the avoidance of doubt to not be fooled by looking by official looking messages, FATF or other logos and signatures of actual or fictitious FATF officials. The FATF does not provide any of the services these messages describe. The FATF is an intergovernmental agency. The FATF does not contact members of the public directly by email, telephone, WhatsApp or any other means about specific financial transactions. The FATF does not vet financial transactions, request fees or have the capacity to block any account. Link to the press release is in the podcast description. Now to money laundering news. We start in the United Kingdom where the Financial Conduct Authority has announced it would like politically exposed persons or PEPs to share their experience of the PEPs regime as it looks to review how financial services firms have applied that PEP regime. This includes the guidance which it issued in 2017, all of which seems to be up for review. However, full terms of reference are not yet available, but they will be published this September with a report, it is understood, in June 2024. That should provide information obtained from this informing next steps. The press release, the PEPs, uh, the press release, the Financial Conduct Authority's PEPs guidance and the letter sent to parliamentarians, civil servants and senior members of the armed forces can all be found in the podcast description. On the subject of PEPs, the following bit of light reading came to my attention this week. It's a short article from services provider Fenago on managing PEPs and the risks which they pose in financial crime terms. The link is in the podcast description. To the UK Financial Intelligence Unit now, which has published its SARS in Action magazine. The pick of this edition is articles on the new SAR portal, a review of possible indicators of private sector corruption, the approach of the Institute of Financial Accountants to reviewing SARS, professional enablers and high-risk behaviours and typologies associated with the trust and company service provider sector. Link is in the podcast description. Now, a little bit more from the Financial Conduct Authority now, which late last week announced its expectations of firms in respect of compliance with the travel rule for crypto asset businesses. The information released this week sets out the Financial Conduct Authority's expectations for firms, what is expected when involved in crypto asset transfers to and from jurisdictions which do not operate the travel rule. The press release also reminds of the consultation on crypto asset transfers which is ongoing from the Joint Money Laundering Steering Group, the JMLSG, which closes on the 25th of August 2023, which is just at the end of next week. Link to the FCA press release as well as the JMLSG consultation can be found in the podcast description. Now, that's it for Money Laundering Now to a bit 
of bribery and anti-corruption news. The first bribery story this week is one which seemingly will not go away. It's Entang Group PLC, which operates various gambling outlets in the UK. It continues to deal with the fallout from the bribery issues arising from its legacy Turkish operations. Last week, we reported that it has set around about... Uh, £585 million to meet the deferred prosecution agreement which it is negotiating with the Crown Prosecution Service. Well, this week it's reportedly looking into the feasibility of asking for a bonus clawback from former officers of the company as a contribution to the likely sanction. We'll see if there's any more on this next week. In other news from the UK, the National Crime Agency has announced that bribery charges have been brought against the Chief of Staff to the President of Madagascar, Romy Adrianarisora. Yeah, I mangled that totally. As well as her associate, Philippe Tabuteau. The allegations relate to the issuance of licenses for mining operations in Madagascar in return for a bribe requested from Gemfields Limited. Gemfields? brought the request to the attention of the National Crime Agency. It is alleged that the two of them sought sums of approximately £225,000 together with a 5% equity stake. Andy Kelly, the head of International Corruption Unit at the National Crime Agency, said this operation demonstrates the ability of the International Corruption Unit to capitalise on cooperation from industry. I'm grateful to Gemfields for bringing this matter to our attention and for their ongoing cooperation with the investigation. Their quick reactions to engage the National Crime Agency have been critical to our ability to pursue this case. The reporting of this alleged request to the National Crime Agency is certainly a feather in the cap for Gemfields, which seems to have robust and dedicated bribery and corruption risk assessment compliance procedures in place, together with clear reporting lines in established policies and procedures. Now, I was interested to see where this would go, so I had a little mooch around Gemfield's website, and this statement stands out from their risk analysis. We aim to balance, it says, a high inherent risk appetite against a low appetite for risks which will materially impact the business, such as bribery, corruption, or human rights risk. There's also a good section in that on risk mitigation. Anyway, I've linked the risks and uncertainties document from the Gemfields website in the podcast description, together with the press release from the National Crime Agency. And certainly that Gemfields website is worth a look. In other bribery and anti-corruption news this week, it's reported by the Financial Times that the African Development Bank, the ADB, has admitted that a fund which was put in place in 2016 has not yet been utilised for any anti-corruption purposes. Perhaps this news is the nudge that the ADB needs to get moving and to start issuing grants. I'll end this week's roundup of bribery and anti-corruption news with a direction to an article which entreats the creation of a global anti-corruption court. Now, this is a consistent theme. I've mentioned this for a few weeks now and then going back. Anyway, the article is by Peter Hayne, who has been a real driver behind this, trying to get the government to commit to this international anti-corruption court. Well, Haynes insists in this article that the time is now urgent, pressing for its establishment. The corruption leaves countries destabilised and in some cases as failed states, so it's a real problem, certainly in Haynes' eyes. One interesting 
point from the article is that there is due to be an imminent meeting at the new institute in Hamburg, which will begin the process of drafting a treaty to establish an international anti-corruption court. For those wishing to read it, unfortunately, you'll need a subscription to the FT. But if you don't have a subscription, then if you search for the article, and I've linked the title and everything in the podcast description, then it may have been sold under agreement with various other agencies, which is quite often happens with these paid subscription news websites. They do sell certain articles on, so it may have been sold and you may be able to get around the paywall that way. It's an entirely legitimate way of getting around the paywall. It's simply a matter of perseverance, and I suspect you'll find it longer term, it might even be free. Anyway, I've linked the version from the FT in the podcast description. That's it for Bribery and Corruption. We end this week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast with the usual roundup of cyber attack news. And we'll start in the UK with an announcement from the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, which was subject to a cyber attack in 2021, but which has only now been revealed. The attack exposed non-classified correspondence from ambassadors and diplomats, diplomats overseas to foreign actors. The attack is believed to have come from China and Russia. Sir David Omond, who is the former director of the Government Communication Headquarters, GCHQ as it's known, said to the I newspaper this week, having access to the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office network, even at an unclassified or low classification level, would be bound to help filling gaps in understanding on the part of an adversary intelligence agency and reveal information about the diplomats themselves and their attitudes to their subjects and to government policies that could be useful. Now, the ripples of the Move It cyber attack continue to be felt across the mill pond with two more victims. First, Vecino Health Centers in the US has announced that it was also subject to a victim, a, a victim of that attack, the Move It cyber attack, but the patient records it contends remain secure and that patient care was not impacted. Secondly, the University of Missouri, which admitted on Wednesday this week that its systems had also been implement, uh, impacted. Rather. Uh, will there be more? I don't know. I've been saying no for a few weeks now and they keep coming back. So I wouldn't be at all surprised if there are more of them. So we'll keep an eye on that. In the US, it's been announced that the Cyber Safety Review Board, which is part of the Department of Homeland Security, will look at the targeting of cloud computing by cyber criminals, especially in light of the recent Microsoft breach. Now, in not an, uh, entirely unrelated news, the war of words between US and China over their tit-for-tat cyber attacks doesn't seem to be relenting, with this week China warning of data security risks after it identified the US as responsible for the attack on the Wuhan Earthquake Monitoring Center. Oh, that's it for the US. We'll dip over to Germany now, where the federal police have released data on the scale of cyber attacks in the country. While overall the number fell by 6.5% in 2022, those which originated overseas rose by more than 8%, which indicates a pivot towards an international threat. In reflecting on this pivot, it's difficult to ignore the Russian invasion of Ukraine and Germany's financial and military support for Ukraine. In terms of the financial cost, while this had fallen slightly on the figure for 2021, 
sitting at 203 billion euros, that figure still represented double the financial cost of cyber attacks on 2019. So that's a doubling of the amount in only three years. Interesting stuff. Now to Interpol, which I suppose touches on that international threat aspect we just got from Germany there, which has announced the conclusion of an operation which has resulted in the arrest of 14 individuals engaged in illicit cyber networks. Link to the press release is in the podcast description. I'll end this week with a thing worth bringing to your attention, I suppose. Over the last couple of months, one of the things I've noticed is a growing trend of rising fear in relation to generative artificial intelligence and the cyber threat which it poses. There is not a sector which hasn't convened some form of group to assess the pros and cons of generative AI. In my own sector of higher education, it's been both viewed as a blessing and a curse. And, mm, yeah... This is certainly a view when it comes to cybersecurity. While it does pose a threat, there are firms which are harnessing AI to counter the threat which has been created. So keep an eye on this issue of cyber threats and cybersecurity and the threat posed by generative AI. It may even be worth an internal CPD to alert staff to the dangers which are posed. Well, that's it for this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. If you want to do so, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll hear from me again, all being well, next Sunday with the usual roundup of all things financial crime. Have a great week, everyone.